you join me in prayer? Almighty Father, as we come before you on this Sabbath day, a post-feast Sabbath, we're so grateful for what we enjoyed these last few weeks, for the fellowship and for the services and for the blessings of coming before you and seeing your face. We're so grateful that we could renew our spirit. And we pray that you will be with those who came out, who sought you through that feast, through the feast, that your guidance would be theirs and that your spirit would invigorate them even more to follow you. We thank you for this day. We ask for a special blessing on those that have a special need because of sickness. We know a number are suffering right now, so if you would be our Yahweh Rapha and answer our prayer for them. And this prayer also includes the desire to this day be an inspiration for many, that your words would come through and that we would all be thankful for your word, for your understanding, as we seek you in these final days. In Yasha's name we pray. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Well, here we are basking in the afterglow of a very inspiring Feast of Tabernacles. We uh, entertained pretty much maxed out this whole facility, and I wondered how much more can we go. Uh, first of all, as you all know, we got to expand our parking. That's, uh, that was a big issue. Um, we can always find a place to sit to eat, maybe downstairs or something, but it's hard to find parking when you're built on a hill, so we're going to have to do something in the coming weeks, but uh, we'll do it. We already have it in the plans to add some more. As we learn by observing them, Yahweh's appointed times are anything but ancient dead ritual. His days are alive and up to the moment. His days unlock the true way to salvation. If only we'd understand them and observe them. And they show us Yahweh's plan prophetically, foreshadowing the inauguration of his very kingdom on earth, coming soon. How much more important can you get? As we showed recently, the Bible is revealed on many different levels. We find it revealed in prophecy. We find it revealed in levels of histor- historical significance, symbolically, philologically, and spiritually, and many other ways that I can't even think of. The Bible is built on layers. As we go from one layer to another, we grow spiritually. So the idea is to advance from one layer to another, one level to another, to learn more about Yahweh and his mind and his will. And that's what we want anyway, to know his will. Our worship must be centered on him and not us, as we, so much we see today. Uh, we have to please Yahweh, not gratify the worshiper. That's not what it's all about. Get the worshiper what he wants, not what the Father wants. Worship today is mostly market-driven. All the techniques of marketing are used to get people to warm a pew. And it centers on the people and not Yahweh. And that means the entire collection of biblical standards, which all center on Yahweh, are filtered through so much that all you got left is fluff. Fluff. 
The narrow way is broadened, and there isn't much left but to think of non-confrontational thoughts, making it easy, making the way light. But the Bible says the way of truth is narrow. It's a narrow way. It's a narrow gate and a narrow way. You've got to squeeze into it. It's not easy. It's not just walking straight on through, no, no worries, no problems. But the narrow way is an overstatement. There's a reason Paul said to fight the good fight, that the time would come when they would not endure sound teachings. I think we're there. I think we're at that time now in this day. That time is today. So how to go forward? We get a lot of direction from history and examples in Scripture. You know, a fundamental key to grasping the Bible, Yahweh's word, is to understand the rich use of analogies and types. For instance, Father Abraham is a type of Father Yahweh. Adam is a type of Yahshua. Moses, a kind of Yahshua. If you look at their lives and what they went through and how they reflect some other person, some other uh, Yahweh or Yahshua. Egypt equates to sin, the promised land, a type of the kingdom. Israel, a model of the called out worshipers, seeking an inheritance in a promised land. It's all there. Man, talk about a design. Talk about a book that's so complex. Each time you open it up, you find something new. There's no end to what you can learn. And I've only scratched the surface. One of the unsung heroes of Scripture um, that we find in Scripture, and let's see if I... Well, I guess that's not working. I have a title to this talk, if we can ever get it on screen, but uh, one of the unsung heroes of Scripture on the... It is there. It's not on my screen, though. we got to do something about that. I remember shutting it off last week, and apparently it's still off. Sorry about that. But one of the unsung heroes of Scripture and the epitome of righteousness himself is a man whose name we know better than any other but Yahweh. His name is the same as our Savior's name, Yahshua. The sanctified elect who will be chosen to rule and reign in the coming kingdom are represented by the man named Joshua. Yahshua, son of Nun. His name means Yahweh is salvation, as we know. The man led Israel over the Jordan into the promised land, and we all remember the story about fighting the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. I think the walls just sank down into the ground so they could run across and attack the city and not stumble over huge blocks of stone. But anyway, that's my own idea. But he did one battle after another to take over the promised land from the Canaanites. He's a man that has unparalleled qualities. And this is why he was relied on to lead the army. Today I want to look at this extraordinary individual and what his life tells us about our own walk of truth. He overcame many obstacles. He went against the status quo. He went against the thinking of the, the people. He went against their weaknesses. He didn't give in to the gainsayers, the negative Nellies, the doubting Thomases. We recall the account 
Moses leads Israel out of Egypt, the express purpose for this exodus announced to Pharaoh by Yahweh himself is to take his people into the wilderness to keep a feast to him, a feast. So when you go into the feast, you are coming out of the world and learning the truths of his people. Keep a feast in the wilderness, Exodus 3.18. In Exodus 15, we read, verse 22, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah, which means bitter. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? This is the first complaint major complaint of the people. What are we going to drink, Moses? First, they were thirsty. Then they were hungry. Then they complained about the fear they had of the Canaanites. Then they questioned Moses' authority. Then they accused Moses of killing certain Israelites when it was Yahweh who did it, not Moses. But Yahweh supernaturally judged them because he was fed up with it. Do you get the feeling that Israel's favorite pastime was belly aching? Is that ours too? I hope not. That their problem was a lack of faith. If you had been among the two plus million people that came out of Egypt, what would you have done? Would you also have jumped aboard this train? I'm unhappy here. I don't like it here. This is hot. And <laughs> we know about that. Had a feast that was uh, rather tepid, but we, we enjoyed it anyway. How different are we really? We had a visitor to Tabernacles years ago who complained that there wasn't a free meal three times a day. I never heard a complaint like that this year. If they did, they were out to lunch, I mean literally, because it was great. We had plenty to eat and everybody seemed to enjoy it. Romans fourteen seventeen, Paul says, The kingdom of Yahweh is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy. Some people are all about food, and if they don't have food, they complain. We have not learned the lessons, apparently, of Israel. I hope that we never secretly wish that we didn't have to take a stand for the Sabbath, for the feast days. We can be just like the world, just breeze on by. Well, we think they're breezing on by, but they're suffering too. They have their own problems. But Yahweh gets us through all of our issues. We came back from the feast, and everything went kitty-wampus. I don't know if you're aware of it. Electronically, everything went down, it seems. Not only did we have the AC problem, but our TriCaster, which really governs everything we do here as far as recording and sending out uh, whatever, it went down, and it, it you know, takes care of all our electronics. And then our, our Drobo, our, our mass storage unit, went down. We couldn't even get to our files. Uh, then we had computers going down, and mine was one of them. And then the network seemed to be going down. This was, this was like, okay, Satan, we made it through, but you can cool it now. But we had a savior, <laughs> Yasha the Messiah, who, through Sister Michaela and Chris, amazingly got it all back up and running again. It was, I'm, I'm astounded how she can, she was, give her a thank you when you see her sometime, but, uh, not only can she sing, but she can figure things out like I've never seen. 
Anyway, I hope that we never secretly wish that we didn't, you know, need to take a stand when we make a commitment to Yahweh because it's all, that's what it's all about, making a commitment to Yahweh. And we should enjoy doing that and teaching the world all about making a commitment to Yahweh. But not like those in Israel who had nothing past complaining. They couldn't see beyond. Young people, do you ever wish you could participate in sports and other school activities on the Sabbath? Friday nights, big one. Do you ever wish you could play? But you know, you can make a stand and you can teach by it. I have two grandsons who uh, love baseball. They made it all the way to the state all-stars, but they told them they can't play Friday nights or Saturday. So the president of Little League found out that they had you know, this stand, and uh, he switched their schedule so that they could play on non-Sabbath times. And then he made the comment, I wish everybody was as committed as they are to their faith. So you can teach people stuff like this when you make a stand. You can teach people, and they're going to remember that. This guy is going to remember it the rest of his life. And the people, too, that uh, heard it. What about making a stand for with relatives and and friends, when they have a big bash in the summer on, on Sabbath, you just go along with it? Or you say, uh, sorry, I won't be able to make it. That's the Sabbath day. I focus on Yahweh. How much easier is it to be like everyone else in Canaan? Trade off salvation for the sake of the world. That was Israel. Israel wished they could go back to Egypt. Forget this wilderness stuff, Moses. We've had enough of it now. Let's go back. You can have it. I hate living the life of a nomad, wandering in the wilderness. I want my house back, my Keurig, and my lazy boy. And I don't like all this wilderness stuff. It's hot. I don't have anything to eat and nothing to drink. Moses, turn it around. We want to go back. I'm miserable. I'm deprived. All about me. Moses, give me Egypt or give me death. And they came very close to the latter, I'll tell you. Yahweh is going to wipe them all out. Yahweh is testing you too. Are you willing to give up the offerings of this world to be obedient to him? What about giving back 10% of your increase? He expects it, you know. In truth, the tithe isn't ours to keep anyway. He said, they're mine. It's mine. Everything he has is his. He just wants a little bit back to show your devotion to him. If we keep it, we're, we're guilty dead to rights of robbing Yahweh according to Malachi 3.8. We have to be able to, as he told the rich young man, we have to be able to give it all up. He couldn't do that. And no doubt, to walk away from everything we have, one day that will be a test for us. I I almost guarantee it. Are we willing to do that? To reconnect with Yahweh. Of all our shortcomings, their shortcomings, Israel's biggest crisis was the same common today. They didn't trust Yahweh. They didn't trust him. They didn't trust him to bless them. They didn't trust him to protect them. They didn't trust him to keep his promises. They trusted in themselves. Most didn't put him first in their lives and don't believe him enough to obey him. He even challenges us. Prove me now herewith and see if I won't pour out the blessings. Prove me. Prove me. Besides that, Israel had no memory cells in their brains. They forgot the miracles Yahweh performed a week ago. 
They lost faith. When they grumbled against Moses, they were actually griping to Yahweh. Paul warns about that. 1 Corinthians 10.10, Neither murmur you, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. I didn't hear too much murmuring at this feast. This was, this was primo when it came to people really coming here out of their hearts to serve Yahweh. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. You probably noticed it too. I mean, all this pessimism and complaining, we see a ray of light. We see some hope come through. Guess what? Joshua is here. Joshua is here. Joshua is here. The Israelite, remarkable man, a saint of saints, unmovable in his convictions, as all the great men of Yahweh were, unmovable. Ranking at the top of the list of the faithful, totally trusting of Yahweh. Let's see what we can learn from this man. Maybe his example will convince us to be truer followers of Yahweh. Of all the adults who came out of Egypt for the promised land of Canaan, only he and Caleb made it there. Not even Moses, not even his older brother Aaron were allowed into the promised land. They were barred, Numbers twenty twelve. But this honor of entry was given to a faithful man of Joshua and Caleb because of their faith, because they were not chronic complainers, because they had faith in Yahweh. We're introduced to this remarkable man in Exodus 17. The qualities we in Israel could use much more of are faith and patience. You know, Yahweh has so much more patience. You ever notice that? We, Come on, come on, come on. We, we pray and we pray and we want something to happen and, and nothing seems to happen. All of a sudden... Boom. Yahweh is testing us at those times. Are we going to be faithful? Are we going to wait on him? He has a lot more patience than we do. If Israel had more faith, they would have had more patience. Same for us. At times we may complain that nothing is happening. He isn't answering our prayers. Well, maybe, maybe there's one of three answers. Maybe the answer is no. <laughs> Maybe the answer is not yet. Maybe the answer is wait. I'm sure we can all attest to that often in our lives. His timetable teaches us faith and patience. And we're no different from the impatient Israelites in many ways. A problem with impatience reveals a problem with faithfulness. We're not willing to wait. We're not willing to expect Yahweh to answer. We want it now. We want to get, get the answer now. Exodus 17, 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose out men, go out and fight with Amalek. As soon as we start to complain, here comes the enemy. And we're most vulnerable when we're off balance, discouraged and fearful and dismayed. So Moses picks out Joshua and commands him to assemble a fighting force at once. He responded to the call with no delay. No excuse. I mean, they had to go to war tomorrow. Can you imagine getting the fighting men all together? They're going to war tomorrow with this this, uh, powerful enemy. No excuses, no arguments, no complaining. It's an important attribute of, of this remarkable man. His faith was so strong, he had nothing to fear. He didn't fear going against these people. Because he had Yahweh behind him. He knew it. 
entering Canaan, he kept reciting the good points of Canaan, remember? When the 12 went in, only he and Caleb had good things to say. We can take it. Oh, these are giants out there, the 10 said. Oh, they're, they're, they're giants. Well, you can't fight these people. I mean, they're huge. Whether it were actually huge or huge in their mind, you know, how we, we embellish things and we don't want to do something. Oh, we can't do it. That's a terrible. You know what's going to happen if we do that. And, of course, usually it never happens. But that's what they were worried about. Joshua and Caleb says, it's a land of milk and honey. Come on. Let's take it. We got Yahweh behind us. So, Exodus 17.10, Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. You remember the story. When Moses held up his arms, they were in defeat of Amalek. When his arms dropped, they started to be defeated by Amalek. So they put stones under his arms and they held up her and uh, Aaron. And her held up his hands, one on one side and the other, until the going down of the sun. And while he was, they were holding him up, they were victorious against the Amalekites. Joshua discomfited them, it says in verse 13, which means overthrew or wasted them. Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And Yahweh said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book. We have it right here, Joshua. There it is, in a book. Write it in a book. This is important. And rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And then Moses built an altar and called the name of it Yahweh Nisi, Yahweh our banner. For he said, because Yahweh has sworn that Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Joshua was a man completely obedient to the call, trusting Yahweh. Whatever Yahweh would ask, he'd do it without fear, without hesitation, with no complaints. The enemy, Amalek, came from Israel's distant past. He was He was the grandson of Jacob's twin brother, Esau. He separated from his brethren, and Balaam called him the first of nations to fight Israel, Numbers 24.20. So he was a relative of Jacob, Israel. He was a relative of Israel. Amalek is a type of our old nature that was part of us, our old nature that we came past, that we got rid of when we came to follow in the footsteps of Yahshua. And it rears its ugly head whenever in a state of crisis, sometimes it wars with us, with Yahweh, our old nature. We have to keep putting it down, putting it down. That's the flesh. The spirit of Amalek causes us to say things which we hadn't said, to do things which we later wish we hadn't done. We rethink. It gives us doubts. It tries to destroy our faith. It hits us in the blind side. Amalek is a tool of the adversary. Let's let's just face it. It's a tool of the adversary. From this first great victory of Joshua, Yahweh gives us some great lessons. First, we can't indulge in self-pity. How can we face him, Moses? How can we do it? We don't really have an army. We just kind of have a bunch of guys with, you know, they got to get their swords and see if they can defeat him. We don't dispute a dilemma with him or challenge his ability to care for us or question his management of our affairs when we put it in his hands. Put it in his hands and go with it. Have faith in him. 
Don't look for someone to blame, someone to blame for your problems. Don't look for a scapegoat. Joshua didn't do Joshua didn't do like the rest of Israel saying, Moses, 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 now look what you did. Now look what you've done. Amalek is going to destroy us. How do you expect me to go out and defeat his army? How would you put up with Israel? Constant, constant, constant. What about poor Moses always getting the full monte of Israel's discontent? How much can one person take? I think about today in politics. How much can a person take? Not much has changed. We'll have dark days, but you know, just wait for a better day. They always come. But they at times are Yahweh's design, and we need to trust in him. They're tests. They're tests because, we're, as we said before, we are, if we're the first fruits, we're undergoing tests now. This is our judgment. This is our judgment now because when Yahshua comes back, if you've been judged worthy, he'll take you into his kingdom because of what we're doing now. We're judged by what we do now. We're judged by what, how we act, how, we, how our faith is, and how we uh, worship Yahweh, how we carry on our lives now. What we do and how we're rewarded is what we do in this life. So when we have trials, it's just part of judgment we have to overcome. He's to see what we're, kind of stuff we're made of. Do we have what it takes to be in his kingdom, to serve him? He's not going to take the, you know, the, the, the doubter. He's not going to take the wishy-washy. He's not going to take the guy who turns his back at any little problem. He's going to take those who are strong in the faith, who will not give up. That's, he doesn't want anybody else in his kingdom. Think about it. He can bring a blessing even from a desert wasteland, a stream of water from a rock, quail, like a sea of birds everywhere to eat, manna. Every morning go out and pick up manna, this, this uh, honey, honey-like tasting bread stuff. Really certainly would be good. Every morning, go out and just pick it up off the ground. The third lesson we learn is we will have to battle our old nature, our selfish, carnal selves that will produce doubt and fear. If we lose our faith in Yahweh, Moses lowering his arms in the battle was like losing the confidence and trust that we humans often lose. Fourth, whatever we find Yahweh's word tells us to do, We do it at once. No excuses, no apologies. Like the man who said at my first feast, if that's what the Bible says, that's what I'm going to do. Plain and simple. He wasn't going to argue it. Wouldn't try to get out of it. He says, that's what it says. That's what I'm going to do. Yahweh called Moses to a thunderous, craggy mountain called Sinai. To speak to him, in one of his journeys up the mountain, Moses chose Joshua out of the millions of Israelites down there. He he wanted a companion to go with him. He chose Joshua. Partway up the mountain, they disappeared in the swirling clouds and smoke. Israel, in the meantime, down in the mountain, waited a couple days, started to lose faith at the bottom of the mountain. For 40 days and nights, no sign of these men. Where'd they go? What were they doing? Did they die? Did Yahweh kill them? What happened to these guys? 
Only a thundering, smoldering mountain was left of the sight of the people. Celestial lightning revealing Yahweh's presence, but did they have the faith that he would deliver? So while Moses was in close communication with Yahweh, Joshua was waiting there faithfully to see what was going to happen. Alone on the mountain, it was a measure of the man's great spiritual strength that he did not despair or panic or run back down the mountain to join Israel, not knowing what had happened to Moses himself, probably. I'm sure Moses said, oh, I'm going to go up, no, I'm going to go this way to commune with Yahweh. You just stay here and, and keep watch. Hungry, thirsty, 40 days of fasting and patient waiting, not giving in to his own desires to join his people. You know, 40 is the number of testing. And in this process, Joshua was being tested. Israel was being tested too, down at the base of that mountain. They were being tested. Would they have faith to wait on Yahweh? He had nothing but his own quiet confidence in Yahweh to sustain him. And he remained totally faithful the whole time. Like a patient son, like Yahshua. Yahweh's own son, who was 40 days on his own mountain being tested by Hasatan right after his immersion. You know, in these quiet interludes, will we remain faithful on the mountain when doubt starts to overtake us? Will we hang in there when doubts arise, being alone to question our faith, to wonder, what am I, what am I doing? Am I going to be faithful? Can I continue on this walk? When there's no one around to fellowship with, there's people out there who, Sabbath after Sabbath, have nobody. And I know what that's like because I was there early on. We didn't have anybody either. But we kept our nose in the scriptures. We did what we could. We didn't have online Sabbath services either. We had nothing. But thankfully, um, in my family, we were going to keep on being true to Yahweh. It's lonely not being able to talk about your faith, you know, I get great encouragement when I read letters from prisoners who say, no one else in this entire prison believes like I do, and then they go on to encourage us. What is the caliber of our character? Can we remain strong and faithful during times of distress, times of trial, times of dismay? Will we remain faithful? We're apart from our friends and associates and families, even when it seems we've been forgotten, will we remain faithful? Well, Joshua could. His fellow Israelites camped at the base of the mountain could not. They couldn't wait to be welcoming again to Moses and Joshua. They went on their own way. After waiting a while, they gave up. Some catastrophe must have befallen Moses and Joshua. They're no longer around. No faith in Yahweh who called Moses up in the first place. Can we trust Yahweh to be with his people, come what may, when that tornado threatened Holt Summit? I talk about this a lot. I keep thinking, I kept thinking, um, would Yahweh harm this place and his people? Would he do that? The ones preaching his truth, would he actually do that? Nah, he wouldn't do it. Why would he? I mean, it's like cutting off your own, you know, 
their own hand. Why would he do that? Why would he harm his people in this work? Let's make a substitute deity to worship, says Israel, something of our own we can see and touch, a mighty one that has no demands on us. We can make it be whatever we want our worship to be. Hey, that's it. Let's worship ourselves. No Sabbath to keep, no clean foods to eat, no feast to observe, no sin to worry about. This deity accepts what we want, the best of both worlds, except there's no blessing in it, except it's not even real. This golden calf symbolizes our own worship. Aaron the high priest was responsible for right worship, and he blew it. Oh, I threw this, you know, this gold into the fire, and out came this calf. But it says he, he engraved it. And then it says, when he looked at it, he says, oh, I'll put an altar up before it. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. He had, uh, he had nothing to do with it. Break off the golden earrings, he said, which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings and were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made a molten calf. And they said, these be your mighty ones, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Amazing. They couldn't even trust the high priest for faithfulness. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and says, Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. And this calf is supposed to represent Yahweh, I guess. And they rose up early on the morning, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, rose up to play, and Yahweh said to Moses, Get down there for your people you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made a molten calf and have worshipped it. Breaking the number one commandment. The first commandment. Have no other mighty ones before me and they immediately broke it. The most important commandment of all. It's a stiff-necked people, he says. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot. I may consume them, and I'll make of you a great nation. And Moses, don't do it. Hold on. Now, I don't know. You know, you often wonder, did Yahweh really mean it? Did he just express it to make a point, you know, to get uh, get Moses' attention? I don't know. Uh, He was at the point where I think he was ready to do it. He was ready to start over with Moses. Moses said, don't do it, don't do it. Uh, They'll just say you brought us out here to kill us. And Yahweh repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Um, Yahweh didn't sin. He just rethought, I guess. Or maybe he, uh, he said, okay. Okay, Moses, I'll listen to you. Israel had been redeemed from the sins of Egypt, saved from oppressive bondage to a great pagan worldly system. And now like a dog returning to vomit, They betrayed Yahweh's trust, made their own mighty one. Says, you know, because in Egypt, that's what they worshipped. The bull, deity, made their own mighty one like they saw in Egypt. Isn't that amazing how we return to the things we learned earlier if we're not careful? All the, the traditions become important again if we're not careful. We've got to make sure we make a break. Just follow Yahweh. Forget man's traditions. We saw the movie at the feast. Fiddler on the Roof. 
Tevyek would rely on, and this was uh, the Jewish traditions, but he kept saying traditions, traditions, and they want to break and go the opposite way. Kind of how many people are. They can't break from those traditions. When Moses finally saw it for himself, he threw down the tables of the law on the rocky slopes, showing that every one of those commandments was now broken by Israel. He challenges Aaron and was enraged by all excuses he heard. The people made me do it. I threw it in the fire and out came this idol. In only 40 days represents a time of trial and testing. Israel had completely reversed course, corrupted themselves. They were the disaster. Immediately, Moses challenged all the people in Exodus 32, 26. But let's back up a minute. Joshua reported to Moses the rebellion in Israelite camp while they were still on the mountain. He says, there's sound of war going on down there. Something, something bad's going on down there. Uh, he was not the kind to uh, want a piece of the action. He was not the kind who wanted to take over Moses' responsibilities or Moses' position. He was a faithful wingman. For Moses. He didn't want to be equal with Moses to make the decisions. He was meek, modest, unassuming, content to be an aide, and he demonstrated his faithfulness over and over and over in somewhat lesser ways. Faithful in small things, he'd be chosen by Yahweh for great leadership. Once Moses was denied entrance into the promised land, Yahweh took Joshua to go in. He took Joshua to lead them in. This was the man who would soon become the leader of Israel, a prototype of Yahshua, the Messiah, leading us into the kingdom. Along with Caleb, he stood against the ten. He defeated the fortified city of Jericho with Yahweh's power. The Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, 31 kings he defeated, this man Joshua. He never looked for excuses. He had full patience and faith. In Yahweh. He was a saint. He was chosen to be Moses' successor. He was filled with Yahweh's spirit of wisdom, Deuteronomy 34 9. He enjoyed the presence of Yahweh, Judges 1, or Joshua 1 5. He had extraordinary faith. He was ever obedient, Numbers 32 12. You know, one of the most moving of passages in the scriptures is what we find in Joshua 24, the last chapter. It was a covenant made with Israel and ratified just prior to Joshua's death. I'm going to read it here, um, verse 13. And I have given you a land which you did not labor, and cities which you built not. What does this say about us and the kingdom? Think about it. And you dwell in them of the vineyards and the olive yards, which you uh, planted not, nor did you eat. Now, therefore, fear Yahweh, he says, and serve him in sincerity and in truth. Remember, this is, this is Joshua basically on his deathbed. He's telling Israel, this is my last my last warning, my last words to you. 
Put away the mighty ones which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye Yahweh. And if it seem evil unto you to serve Yahweh, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. Whether the mighty ones which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the mighty ones of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. The people answered and said, Far be it that we should forsake Yahweh to serve other mighty ones. And guess what they did? (laughs) Forsook Yahweh. How many times to serve other mighty ones? You know, when you make a commitment, you keep it. When you make a commitment to Yahweh, that's it. You've made a commitment to Yahweh. This man says, just prior to his death, you can do what you want, but that's on you. That'll be on you. Me and my family, I'm the one I've got to answer to, to Yahweh. I'll do Yahweh's will. And we can see the work of the adversary all the way through this, trying to overthrow faith, trying to divide Who do you think Satan's going to work on the most in these final days? Those who worship in darkness or those that are closer to becoming Yahweh's faithful in the kingdom? Who's going to work hardest on? On Yahweh's people who have the truth, the prize, the future members of his family? He's going to work on destroying your relationship with Yahweh. Satan is the accuser of our brethren. He's a master at rebellion. He knows you very well. He knows your weaknesses, he knows your strengths, and he'll work on your weaknesses big time. Knowledge is power, and Satan has immense knowledge. He has seen and remembers all of our characteristics. What are your weaknesses? Can you overcome them? Do you overcome them? Satan will use that, whatever it is, whatever you do that defies Yahweh. He's going to work on. He's going to use it. He attacks us when we're weak spiritually, through lack of prayer, lack of Bible study, when we only come occasionally to his presence, when we get overly concerned over little things, the Marthas. You know, here's Joshua sitting there with her sister, having... uh, Communion, communion with them, and Martha's worried about a crooked tablecloth. Come on, Martha. What's going on here? Well, we can't blame her so much because in some ways we're just as nutty. We don't see the big picture. We don't see the importance of Yahweh and his, his word. So we gossip. We have selfish ambitions. We lose our focus on what really matters. Uncontrolled emotions. Are we always upset about something? Desire to manipulate, control. Loss of spiritual fervency. I mean, it goes on and on. Lust of the flesh. 1 Peter 5, 8 to 9 says we must be ever so vigilant. Be watchful. We know there's a roaring lion around there just ready to snap at us. We're tried by the same thing the world is tried with. Only I think it's harder. I think he works on us harder. So may we all have the faith of Joshua to trust in Yahweh and not in our own will and in our own ways and our own mind and trying to get through. Go to Yahweh first. You know, 
There's a sister in the faith who says, sometimes I get just overload with problems. I can't handle it. I just can't deal with it all. So what I do is I put it in a box and I say, here, Yahweh, take care of it for me, and then I forget it. And guess what? It works. He takes care of it. Sometimes we worry that we have to work everything out ourselves. Sometimes we can't. So we leave it up to him. I hope we can all learn lessons from Joshua, a man with pure faith. Hallelujah.